Hey everyone, Kevin here from Skywatcher, and we are back with the Skywatcher What's Up webcast after taking two weeks off. Uh, thanks for giving me some time to have with my family while we had our second child. Um, still navigating those waters, of course, but um, thanks for giving me the time. And we are finally back with, of course, our What's Up webcast, and we're here with a good friend of ours that we've been to multiple events with and shows, and I've observed with him many a time. And you might be familiar with a lot of his work on Facebook with 365 Days of the Moon. Um, so we're actually happy to have our buddy Robert Reeves here live from Texas. So let me get him up here and make my ugly mug disappear real quick transition that out and let me bring mr reeves in to the picture so uh how are you doing robert doing great uh it's been awful rainy here lately so uh my telescope's been parked but uh i've been having a lot of fun uh reprocessing a lot of deep sky images i've taken lately uh using a Sostron 14 and hyperstar and a uh triad ultra filter from my driveway here uh, in the middle of san antonio and they've been turning out extraordinary uh, by my standards anyway considering uh, i grew up in an era where city astrophotography was impossible uh, so I'm, I'm just delighted with what's going on um, it's kind of taken time away from my lunar work so uh, i've been uh, posting older lunar images to keep 365 days of the moon going along. Uh, I ran into a, a pile of CDs that had archived images from when I was using a Celestron 8 and a DMK41 camera when I just graduated out of the webcam stage about 13 years ago. And uh, I reprocessed all of those old archived images using the techniques we use today, you know, auto stacker and uh, so forth. And uh, I, I was surprised to find that they're very competitive with the pictures taken with the modern uh, camera and uh, the Slostron 11 and the Skywatcher Maxudov that I use today. So I've uh, uh, been having fun with both worlds, uh, doing more deep sky than lunar for the past month or so. But it's, uh, I guess, the lure of a new toy. Yeah, uh, got that yeah. C14 recently, and, uh, 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 and I've really fallen in love with it. Nice. So for anybody who's actually joining us today and they're not familiar with Robert's work, um, Robert runs, this is just on your personal Facebook page, 365 yeah. Days of the Moon isn't like its own thing, it's just on your, your own page. Yeah, it's it's on on my Robert Reeves page. There there is a 365 Days of the Moon on Facebook that I attempted to start, but it's treating me like a business, mm. so I, I I've abandoned it. Uh, I don't post anything there because it it keeps thinking that I'm a business, and that uh, I just haven't figured out how to get around that. Um, so uh, I just post them on my personal Facebook page. Look for. Look for Robert Reeves on Facebook, and I'm the Robert Reeves that's uh, by the telescope. So uh, there you, you know, go. You, you can figure out which one is me. Nice. So something I always like to ask people that are on here because I I think it makes it more personable because we always have our stories of how we got into this crazy hobby of ours. But uh, how did you get started in astronomy? I think. 
and this was so long ago that I can't be positive. Um, I think it was an outgrowth of uh, an early interest in the space program uh, back in the uh, 1950s, uh, even before Sputnik, when I uh, realized that uh, uh, satellite program was in the works back in the uh, 1955, 1956, the old Vanguard satellite program, and uh, realized that very quickly we're going to be going into space. Um, Walt Disney was also uh, promoting space flight on his Disneyland TV show. It was on every Sunday night. This was back in 1955, and he had a series uh, of uh, of uh, shows about space, going to the moon, uh, you know, featuring luminaries like Werner von Braun, people like that. So uh, it, it captivated my imagination. And uh, although I wasn't... Uh, fully aware of astronomy. I do remember certain aspects of it uh, when I was a kid. Uh, particularly, I remember uh, I was living in Macon, Georgia at the time. I think this was about 1956. And we were driving somewhere at night. And I was in the back seat, and I was leaning way back in the back seat. I could look up through the rear window, and I could see a pattern of stars that was very distinctive. The belt stars of Orion and Betelgeuse and Rigel on either end. And uh, that, that pattern stuck in my mind, although I didn't realize at the time that it was Orion. But uh, uh, later on, uh, 1959 maybe, uh, space exploration was starting to be a pretty big thing because by now we've got satellites up there. We're uh, thinking about putting men in space. The Mercury program had started. And there was this concept for a space station that I saw that had a, a hub with two real long booms and modules on either end. And that uh, space station design reminded me of that star pattern of Orion, the three belt stars being the hub and Rigel Betelgeuse being the uh, the uh, modules out at the end of the long booms. So uh, Orion became a space station to me. And it probably wasn't until... Well, 1960 that I started to learn the constellations. By then I'd moved by, uh, moved a lot. I, uh, my father was an airline pilot. My stepfather was uh, Air Force. So uh, between the two families, I moved around a lot. But uh, by this time, I'm living in South Texas uh, in a, uh, at a ranch, about midway between San Antonio and Laredo. And back then, there was nothing out there. There was not a light one to illuminate the sky. So uh, I very quickly uh, got to know the sky. Uh, got a pair of binoculars and a four-inch reflector for Christmas in 1960 and uh, put them to work and uh, learned my way around the sky. But at the same time, the space program was also advancing rapidly. And uh, Project Mercury was well underway. Uh, the first stirrings of the Apollo project were coming along in the late 60 era, 1961, uh, with ideas of this spaceship is going to go to the moon. And so the moon was a very big deal back then. And I started trying to photograph the moon. I think I took my first moonshot back in 1958. And uh, of course, it was terrible. It really wasn't until uh, around 1961, March of 61, that I got a really good moon picture through that four-inch reflector. And uh, 
I've been playing with the moon ever since. Uh, when I got out of the military, got, came back from Vietnam in 1970, started saving up my money to get a telescope, ended up with a, a Celestrom 8, finally got it in 1975. And I used that telescope for almost 40 years until uh, I got the C11. And now the C14 has entered my life. So a progression of telescopes, including the Skywatcher Max Udoff, um, that I keep pointing back at the moon, uh, going back to the that that era when the moon was such a big deal. Uh, America was going places. This was a destination for uh, our astronauts, uh, brave heroes who dared to set foot on another world, explore other worlds, and you know we're we're going to the moon. Uh, sadly, that politically ended. Uh, just as it was getting going. But uh, the moon never faded from my uh, personal realm, my interest. The, uh, the geology of the moon is fascinating. The, the moon is changing every night. I mean, if you watch uh, close enough, the moon will change hour by hour. I have a, a series of images I took of uh, sunrise on Ptolemaeus Crater. Over the course of two hours, the crater evolved in a something completely different as the shadows crept across the floor of the crater. So uh, the moon is very dynamic. It's not just uh, this place with a bunch of boring bumps and holes. Uh, it, it's, it's a world that's got amazing and fascinating geology, if you know what you're looking for. And uh, it's always stuck with me. I, uh, of course, it's something you can enjoy from the backyard. Uh, it's not like deep sky where uh, I go outside and on a good clear night, I'm lucky if I can just barely, barely crack second magnitude. Um, but uh, the moon doesn't care about light pollution. Uh, the moon shines through bright, clear. As long as you have uh, have clear skies, you're in good shape. And uh, it's it's up most of the month. Sometimes you have to look in the morning. But uh, it's always a target that you can see from no matter where you are. So, I think that's kind of the cool thing right now with everyone being stuck at home. Mm, and we've actually pretty. seen a flux of people getting into the hobby, which is awesome. But um, being a deep sky observer myself, it's kind of easy to be like, ugh, the moon's in the way. But um, <laughs> just recently I've tried to pay more attention to it. And the moon is such a microcosm where you can just get lost in the moon the entire time. I know you have a bunch of images that you'll probably be showing us here in a second that yeah, we can um, them. just, I mean, you could just be into the moon. There's so much stuff up there between yeah. like lava tubes and craters and domes. And, you know, there's a lot of little challenging features that, you know, if you bust out a chart that you could mm -hmm. really dig into that. So I was hoping you could kind of, Tell us a little bit with your images, like maybe how you pick a target or maybe if there's some interesting targets on the moon that you would recommend people checking out that might be off the usual beaten path um, of the typical craters and mare up there. Oh, well, uh, there's so many, it's kind of hard to pop any right off the top of my head, but uh, we'll explore some images here in a little bit and uh, prowl around and... Uh... Uh, you, you'll see the variety is amazing. Uh, uh, 
only there's only two forces that created the face of the moon. It's either uh, asteroid or meteor impacts or volcanism that modified uh, the uh, earlier impacts. So uh, uh, the forces that made the face of the moon are fairly simple, but the uh, uh, effects that they do and how they relate to each other and how uh, one can modify the other, uh, there's just endless uh, possibilities of, of exploring this on the face of the moon as the uh, phase slowly creeps across the face of the moon and reveals more and more. Uh, we follow the Terminator, of course, uh, where, where the shadows are to, to, to see the relief, uh, the height, uh, elevation of lunar features. Um, people think, well, uh, the full moon is the best time to observe the moon because you can see the entire moon. But sadly, that's when there are the least shadows and the least amount of detail is visible. So uh, uh, the advice is follow the Terminator. Cool. Um, I know we you kind of went over what you were using uh, earlier, but um, I know you started with the C8, um, uh -huh. and now you've kind of progressed through the, the Celestron lineup. Um, but what, what do, I know a lot of people will ask, um, us, when they call in, they're like, I want to take pictures of the moon. What aspects of a telescope do you think people should take a look at if they're if they're really into the moon? Um, what are some particular things that you well, should pay attention to? Well, for to? one thing, you'll need long focal length. Uh, lunar detail is tiny. It's small. I mean, the, the moon is the closest celestial body to us, but it's still a quarter million miles away. So no matter how good your optics... Um, the atmosphere is going to be limiting what you can see as well. Uh, if you can crack the one kilometer resolution barrier, you're doing good. You're uh, uh, getting about as good as you're going to get. Uh, but uh, you need focal length to do that. Um, 2,000 millimeter focal length uh, at a minimum. Um, short refractors, you know, they'll show you the whole moon. But when you try to... Uh, zero in on, on small details and uh, uh, throw Barlow's on there, you're, you're uh, uh, asking a, a short focal length optical system to do a lot. Um, that's why the uh, um, Skyocher 7-inch Mac is um, quite phenomenal. It's an F-15 system. Uh, I think it's, what, 2,700 millimeter yeah, focal length? Yeah, I pack a lot of focal length in a tiny tube. Yeah, and the uh, Maxudov design, being naturally high contrast, lends itself very well to the moon. Uh, I'd been using uh, the Celestron 11 for uh, lunar work for quite a while, and uh, I was really pleasantly surprised to see how competitive the 7-inch Maxudov was compared to the, the C11. Um, the uh, resolution is fractionally less because it is a smaller aperture system, but the contrast is so much greater that the images are very competitive. So uh, I, I've been delighted with the performance of it, and it's easy to maneuver around. Uh, Celestron 14 is a nice telescope, but it's a beast. Uh, it does not, does not fit into my observatory. So state I that. I've had, <laughs> I'm on my second 14 right now, and it's I've had a C11 for a while. I've had a ton of scopes, but it's amazing how much bigger a 14 is from an 11. You go yeah. from, oh, this is easy to, 
Oh, oh my good God. God. <laughs> <laughs> this is a two-person job now. <laughs> yeah, so as much as, as much as I love the C-14, and if if you're into the moon, like seriously hardcore into the moon and planets, I mean, you look at other planetary imagers like um, Damien Peach and Christopher Goh and the 14 is, yeah. you know, generally something that is a weapon of choice and i mm-hmm. i would love skywalker to do a bigger mac you know and for those who might be wondering what mac robert's referring to that's the sky max 180 that's the seven inch maxitoff cassegrain that we produce oh, but, is that um, the official name of it that's the official name of it i've um, never known that all these years <laughs> yeah well you have one of the older ones the new ones with the green branding actually have the name printed on the side of uh. the side of that so that's the sky max 180 um I would love to do a bigger one because I do feel after personally using the 180 for planets in the moon, I feel like it's, it's a great intro scope for the planets for the moon. It's phenomenal. Seven inches Mm -hmm. enough aperture to dig into the moon and the focal length is really important part. But I find that seven inch on planets is you're just getting your feet wet at that point. Yeah. Um, There, there, there's room to grow. That's for sure. Uh, if if uh, Skywatcher would come out with a uh, ten inch back, it uh, uh, would be a, a phenomenal lunar and planetary telescope. Well, if you guys watching want us to do a bigger Mac, I'd be curious to know what people are thinking. Or even if you're watching this after we did it, down in the comments section below this video, if you want Skywatcher to do a bigger Mac, um, it'd be something interesting, open to discussion. Let us know what you think on that because it's. There's, I think there's room for at least one larger size um, in there, something between mm. 8 and 10. Um, but it would be interesting, so I'd be curious to see what people think on that. I know we've talked about it numerous times, but yeah. um, getting more opinions would be kind of cool. But for now, the 180 is is our big one. Um, well, it's a grand little telescope. Uh, it, it, it packs uh, an amazing amount of performance into a small package. And uh, of course, I, f- I forgot to mention the the twenty uh, inch Dobsonian, uh, the uh, 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 Stargate uh, F four twenty inch. Uh, people would think that's a rather unusual and poor system to image the moon with, being an F four system. But uh, I've gotten some pretty darn good lunar images through a twenty inch Stargate. Uh, yeah, having a, a daub with tracking, I've seen some amazing people do some, regardless of manufacture at that point, um, a daub with tracking. I mean, you've got, you're already like natively, you know, once you get to like the 14 inch and more, if you're running a scope that's like F4.5 or F5, which most daubs are, you're already in that 2000 millimeter ballpark right. off the go and you're already at f4.5 so even if you like barlow it you're still running at like f8 so you've got all this light pouring through there but i i did forgot you have the the 20 inch um which yeah. the dictator of the big scopes in which you probably can attest to this is the seeing conditions of your sight yeah the seeing is is critical no matter what size telescope you're doing because that seeing is going to is, is going to be what limits the resolution on the moon um, if you've got uh, uh, three or four arc seconds seeing uh, nothing no telescope is going to do you any good on the moon yeah you'll you'll see general features but the fine detail that uh, you want to examine uh, uh, 
uh, uh, critically and uh, and enjoy the uh, the uh, the geology, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, do that uh, unless the seeing is good. And of course, that's pretty much true with anything. Like, uh, the planets will disintegrate into a fuzzy ball, um, double stars, impossible to split. You know, so we're, we're we're prisoners to whatever the atmosphere allows us to see. That's a big thing. I we have a lot of beginners who call into us and and such. Who, um, it it always amazes me how, you know, there's always talk about, oh, I got this telescope or I have this Strel ratio or oh, it's this big and I have this fancy camera and all that's great, but it's amazing to me how seeing conditions are something that are very rarely ever talked about in astronomy it's almost something you got to figure out on your own yeah. and that is like the variable that dictates everything you know we have someone who calls mm -hmm. up and they're like my guiding isn't you know under one arc second and you figure out what their their <laughs> resolution of their telescope is or it's i'm using an 80 millimeter it's like you don't even have the resolution to resolve that small and then mm -hmm. if you do then i want to know what site you're at